Ignatius of Loyola was a fiery Basque, as they all are, or so I'm told. He was reared in the town of Loyola. He was of minor nobility. He was the third son of his parents. The tradition was, in those days, the first son would take over the family business, or in this case, the small um, town of Loyola, which was governed by that family. The second son would typically be in the army. Uh, I'm sorry, Ignatius was the fourth. The third son would typically become a priest or a monk, and the fourth son, if there was one, was on his own. Ignatius, knowing he really had little hope of a big future for himself, wasn't limited in his own mind. He grew up as a daydreamer. He loved to read, and his favorite books were uh, the troubadours of, of old, knights in shining armor who rescued the damsel in distress and came to be the hero of everyone. Despite the fact that he was very small in stature and the fourth son in the family and hence wouldn't have any family or cultural support to become a soldier, that was still his dream. Very bright, Ignatius found a way to leave the small town of Loyola and attach himself as a minor official, or attach himself as a squire, rather, to a minor official in the uh, uh, palace of the king. And so he did. He learned what he could as a squire, although he still had little hope of becoming a knight. But he learned well and all the while continued to read the stories of the knights in shining armor, knowing that this was his dream, his goal, his ambition. He returned to Loyola, and shortly after he returned, there was a fight brewing. The army, I think they were French, were coming in to uh, invade the town of Loyola, They were a much larger force and a more experienced fighting force. All of the real knights and the leaders of the army of Loyola recognized that this was not a battle that could be won, and so they left town. Ignatius saw his moment. He rose up in leadership and said, Who will fight with me? And a few people did. In the first volley, Ignatius took a shell, a round iron, cast iron shell, as they were in those days, to his leg, shattering it in several places. He fell to the ground, and everyone around him fled. Left alone, the invading French thought that he would soon die, but nonetheless, they put his leg together in the best way they could in a field army, a field medic sort of way, and left him alone. He healed somewhat 
One leg was shorter than the other. A bone was protruding uh, out of that leg, and uh, he wasn't the same. It was necessary to break the, the bone another time, of course, in days long before anesthesia, in order for it to be reset. But that, too, didn't help very much. A third time, a physician said, I can help, broke the bone again, and set it with a splint. At this point, Ignatius was, was far from his town of Loyola. He was uh, near, uh, a, a young, near, the, near the home of a, an older couple. They took him in while he convalesced. They looked after him and cared for him. As he grew stronger, he longed to continue reading the stories that he had in the years prior. But the only books they had were a Bible and a book of the life of the saints. Ignatius still harbored the dream that despite one leg shorter than the other and the excruciating pain in which he found himself constantly, that he might become a knight yet and garner the esteem of the people around him. He continued to read the stories of the lives of the saints and the Bible, the only books available to him, and he began to notice something striking. When he read the stories of the saints and the major characters of the Bible, he was filled with strength and peace and hope. But when he stopped and he began to daydream again about becoming a knight and the stories of the knights of old, he found himself disquieted, uncomfortable, unsettled, restless, even angry at what had happened to him in life. After a while, He wondered if maybe there wasn't a lesson to be learned in that. And in fact, he realized it was the work of the Holy Spirit, gently leading him away from his dreams to discover the dreams that God had for him. He would look back and realize he began to understand that the saints and the characters of the Bible were no less knights in shining armor just of a different age and in a different war. He paid more attention to that and began to use these stories of the Bible and the lives of the saints as fodder for his daydreams. He attracted a few other young men toward him as he went off to university, and in his studies... He and the other young men who were with him uh, found themselves uh, learning more about holiness and the ways of God, and he taught the others how to pray in the same way he had learned through using mental imagery, imagination, letting the Lord guide our lives through capturing our imagination, letting the Holy Spirit take over, and essentially using daydream and imagination as a powerful tool of prayer. The more young men who came to follow 
Ignatius in a group he called the Company of Jesus. In English, we call it the Society of Jesus, the Jesuits. The more he taught them this technique of prayer and taught them by following this technique and tracing the patterns of what, what lead them to peace and joy and confidence and those things that lead them to be unsettled and restless in their hearts by tracing the patterns of what he called consolation and desolation, they can come to know the will of God very clearly in their lives and have the strength and the grace to follow that. Ignatian contemplation is the hallmark of his set of uh, prayers called the Spiritual Exercises, which is a four-week retreat, uh, not really week, but four episodes that may take a week or so uh, in the full retreat. I wasn't able to take the typical 30 days to go away and do the Ignatian spiritual exercises, but as a young priest, I followed what is um, the 19th annotation in Ignatius's uh, spiritual exercises. The older he got, the more he added notes, and his 19th note is for people who can't get away from their lives and take uh, the whole 30 days, there's a way of following the spiritual exercises in everyday life. Now, it took me just about a year, uh, but I I did it, and uh, it was a life-changing experience of prayer. Since then, Ignatian contemplation has been a very important part of my own prayer life, and I know it is for many, many, many others. And so I simply want to share that with you this evening. It's not a style of prayer that comes naturally to everyone. Not everyone uh, is able to give over their imagination to the Holy Spirit and let the Holy Spirit take charge. For some, it takes a while, some practice, some discipline. For others, it's simply not your style of prayer. And that's okay, because in the next few weeks, we have other styles of prayer, and guaranteed one of them, at least, is going to fit. What is Ignatian contemplation? It essentially is entering into a passage or story of the Bible. It doesn't have to be from the Bible, but the best uh, entry into, into this style of, of prayer is to use a Bible passage and typically uh, something that Jesus did or taught in his life. Old Testament passages work fine, But for many people, again, the entry point is to look at episodes in the life of Jesus, his teachings, his miracles, significant moments in his life. I chose the healing of the blind man, Bartimaeus. It's a significant miracle. It has a lot to say for any of us. In Ignatian contemplation, we enter into that story We become like Ignatius, the young man who, as a a young man, read the stories of the knights in shining armor and then imagined himself right in that scene, taking charge and fighting. We read the story, and then we put the text aside. We enter into that, 
and we let the Holy Spirit take charge of our imagination so that we can be part of this story as it unfolds. We imagine ourselves at that moment present with the Lord and the others in this scene. We become part of the action. And then, toward the end of this prayer, we enter into conversation with the Lord himself as the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us. It's a very personal uh, type of prayer. And so, with me trying to guide a contemplation tonight, uh, it's sort of forcing the issue. I'm simply trying to model what the contemplation might look like, and I encourage you to go home and over the coming weeks try this on your own. Find a passage in the life of Jesus, open it, read through that passage several times, put the text aside, and then enter into the scene and let it unfold as the Holy Spirit takes charge of your imagination. What are the steps? First, find a comfortable spot. Now, these pews aren't the most comfortable spot available, but it's all we got tonight. Get as comfortable as you can. That may mean loosening some clothing and jittering around a little bit, jiggling around a little bit so you've become comfortable. Find a way to relax. Make sure your cell phones are turned off, by the way. Relax by taking a few breaths, breathing deeply, breathing in and out. And through that, coming into the present moment, not thinking about tomorrow, not worrying about yesterday, but just living in this present moment, letting the Lord, giving the Lord permission to take your imagination where he wants it to go. And then enter into the scene of the story. Enter into it. There's a technique that the Jesuits call saturation of the senses. And that is to use all five senses to become aware of the setting, entering into the scene of this gospel story. What do you feel on your face, your hands? What do you smell that's going on? What do you hear? What do you see everywhere you look? Make the colors vivid. Look at the details. What do you taste if there's part of, that's part of the senses, sensation of the story? Saturation of the senses is a way of bringing ourselves totally into the scene, <clears throat> allowing the Lord to bring us completely into that moment. With our senses saturated by the scene unfolding before us, we watch carefully, at the, watch the people in that scene and listen to their conversation. Of most importance, when we see Jesus, we pay attention to him. We watch how he looks at other people. We watch how others look at him. We watch how he treats others, how he moves, what he says. And then at a certain point when the Holy Spirit leads us, uh, we enter into conversation with the Lord himself and talk to him not as though he is present right now, but because he is present right now. As we begin our prayer, we make an act of faith that we trust that the Holy Spirit is leading our imagination. We give ourselves over to the Holy Spirit 
and we understand as the Holy Spirit is with us in this moment of prayer, so are the other persons of the Blessed Trinity. God the Father with his power and love and mercy and healing and the person of Jesus who walks through our imagination just as he walked through the streets of, and, and, and valleys of Galilee and Jerusalem so long ago. 